Uh, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 10. We are covering the entire chapter of Genesis today, a chapter which is often called the Table of Nations. It's a bit of a break in the narrative in order to give a broad overview of the greater implications of the post-flood world. Uh, recall last week in Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 and 19, the Bible said this, And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham, and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. And I told you that this we, that we talk more about this when we got to Genesis 10. Today is that day. We find here the first indications that we are moving past Noah in the narrative and focusing upon the next generations, in this case his sons, Shem. Ham and Japheth, with the text telling us that of them the whole earth was overspread. Uh, and today's message is going to be a little bit, uh, I guess, a, a lot of, of these early days in Genesis, these early chapters of Genesis have been a bit more cerebral, a little more academic. We're going to talk a bit more about things from kind of a philosophical, ideological standpoint, helping set a mindset for us to understand what's happening here in the Word of God. And as with everything that we have found so far, in the text, so too with this claim, this claim that of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the whole earth was overspread, we find it not only to be historically sound, this statement, but we find it as well to be scientifically sound. Humanity has really come into its own on a knowledge of this idea in the past couple of decades since the mapping of the human genome had been completed in 2003. At that point, uh, there have been a lot of insights, and those insights have been very interesting, not just from a perspective of uh, what's my ancestry, right, with all of these um, uh, ancestry um, uh, services where you can figure out where you come from and all of that, but also from a historical standpoint, things have become very interesting. The first significant part of the human genome to have been sequenced was mitochondrial DNA. And you're not going to get a huge science lesson today, but I have a few things to say as it relates to Genesis chapter 10 and the Table of Nations before we dig into it. And what's so very interesting about mitochondrial DNA and mitochondria in particular is that it's the, and, and, and mitochondria, that's the part of the human cell which takes food and it converts it to those things necessary in order that the cell can continue to function as it needs to. Uh, mitochondria are inherited without alteration from mother to every child. Now, that doesn't mean that every single, single mitochondria in every single person uh, that we would trace to a, a singular mother, which in our case would be, you know, we, we'd understand to be Eve eventually. It doesn't mean that everyone is the exact same because, of course, as we understand uh, with anything in DNA and cells and everything else, like all things, mitochondrial DNA accumulates throughout the course of time Mutations, right? That's the word I'm looking for. And as it accumulates these mutations, then it creates distinct lineages, which is why we can trace your lineage from one nation to another nation, from one background to another background. But as scientists have accounted for such things, for these mutations, and see common mutations in various ancestral backgrounds, they have come to some very interesting conclusions. Now, the first and most basic of these is that they have traced all humans back to, effectively, a single man and a single woman, often named mitochondrial Eve and Y-chromosomal Adam. 
And of course, because these scientists do this work within the scope of their preconceived assumptions, we all interpret evidence through our assumptions. They assume that the way things are, the way things that have always been, they don't take into account that there might have been something as dramatic as you know, just throwing it out there like a cataclysmic flood and a cataclysmic event, not just that changed the entire surface of the earth, but also perhaps might have taken humanity from living to until you know, about a thousand years and brought it down to you know, 10% of that and even less. And since they don't take into account such possibilities, they've put mitochondrial Eve and Y chromosomal Adam at about 150 to 200,000 years ago, whereas the only eyewitness account that we have to those events, that being the account of the Word of God as authored by God himself, tells us that this man and this woman were probably created, we, you know, there, there's a few gaps in the lineage that, that, that leave for extra time, but were probably created at least within the last 10,000 years, probably somewhere six to 7,000 years ago. And by the way, this is actually not even an unheard of number since they've sequenced DNA. There was a journal that came out in 2004 estimating that the most common recent ancestor of all humanity which technically would have been that mitochondrial Eve and Y-chromosomal Adam, might have actually lived as recently as 5,000 years ago. This was an article that was put out in Japan in 2004 by a group of scientists there. With most of the objections to that date, when it, it came out between the peer review process and such, being ideological in nature, not necessarily scientific in nature. But what is far more interesting, so I, we talk about mitochondrial Eve, and, and, and that's interesting, but what's far more interesting than mitochondrial Eve is the study of the breakdown of nations genetically. Washington Post reported in June of 2009 that a genetic analysis of 53 populations found that all 53 of those populations fell into three genetic groups. And this is interesting. And of course, they talk about those groups. If you see the snippet of article that I give you there, those groups fracturing some 70,000 years ago from that common mitochondrial Eve and Y chromosomal Adam about 200,000 years ago. And, and that's fine. We understand where, where they're coming at with that. Once again, those numbers coming from assumptions that they are making based upon the materialistic worldview. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But the assumptions that we make based upon the chronology of the Word of God makes that fracturing at about 4,600 years ago. But what is so interesting is that we can agree with that 2009 report in this one thing. That if we were to trace the ancestors of all the nations down to their beginnings, we would agree that we would trace them down to three distinct genetic lineages. Shem, Ham, Japheth. And specifically, because we're tracing mitochondria, their wives, right? The wives of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, who we don't get their names, Mrs. Shem, Mrs. Ham, Mrs. Japheth, right? And again, as we think through this, we're recognizing in this that it's not necessarily the case when we see these huge disparities between what we would call the science today, which in the last few years we've learned that the science uh, may not have as much credibility as we, as we wish it did. And the Word of God, the, the, the differences may not actually be, and, and we've acknowledged this for many generations in the Christian worldview, that we're seeing different evidence 
but it's the assumptions that we make when we're interpreting that evidence. And here's the thing. Everyone is entitled to have their foundational assumptions. But what we aren't entitled to do is pretend that we aren't making assumptions when we interpret evidence. And we don't want to get to the point where we say we aren't making any assumptions because we absolutely are. Everyone makes fundamental assumptions when they step into the interpretation of evidence. Now, in creation science, we happily admit that we have foundational, fundamental assumptions. And by assumptions, what that means is that we are, we are, we are taking things that, that we can't prove and we are making them the foundation upon which we are interpreting what we see. And our foundational assumptions are these. We assume that the Bible is true when interpreted naturally according to language, according to style, and according to announced intent. Right? That doesn't mean that every single word in the Bible is true in the sense that when you look into the book of Job and you read in the book of Job, he has his comforters, right? And his comforters have entire chapters dedicated to their arguments to Job as to why Job is a dirty, rotten sinner because he's suffering. And at the end of Job, what we find is God shows up. God kind of puts Job in his place a little bit. And then he says, all of these comforters who have talked to you, with the exception of the final one, the young man, all of the other comforters, he says, they're all wrong. So if I go back to those chapters in Job where those comforters are talking... What they're saying is not true. Now, it's, it's true that it was recorded in the Word of God. It's, the, the Word of God is telling us accurately what they said. But what they said was false. They, were, they, they had a, a, an idea about who God was, and at the end of Job, God corrects the record, right? So when we say that the Bible is true, or that we interpret the Bible literally, we are taking into account there, we have to take into account their narrative, poetry, Right? So when the Bible talks about uh, the, the earth standing on top of pillars, this is poetic. This is a, po- a poetic statement in the book of Psalms. And if we ever take poetry and we draw it out directly, literally, there's a lot of things in poetry, whether biblical poetry or other poetry, that we can take and say, yeah, that, that, that actually connects to real life and it's fine. But then there's other things that we recognize to be metaphor, simile, hyperbole, exaggeration, illusion. And we don't take those things literally because they're not meant to be taken literally. That's the point of poetry, right? Flowery language, exaggerations, these things happen in poetry. So we have this fundamental assumption, and this is why we call our interpretation a, we, that we interpret the Bible. Literally is a fine word, but the word that I prefer is naturally. So we allow the Bible, whatever genre we happen to be in as we're interpreting, if it's narrative, then I'm going to take it at its word. If it's poetry, I'm going to take it at its word when filtered through poetry, right? And the various elements of language and how you understand poetry. If it's prophecy, then we have to recognize that there are different rules to how we interpret prophecy because prophecy uses a great deal of illusion. It uses a great deal of symbolism. It uses a great deal of uh, of, um, metaphor and simile. So we need to factor that in when we say we are going to interpret the Bible literally. So we interpret it naturally when we take into account uh, these various language, style, and uh, intent parts of the text. We assume then that the Bible is true We assume that the Bible is true, not just because 
uh, as not, not just because of what it is, but because God has inspired it and preserved it for us. We assume that as well. And then when we interpret evidence, we do so with the intent of building upon our foundational assumptions. And evolutionary science, likewise, does the same thing. And this is not something that often comes up when we're talking about the science. Scientists do not regularly talk about nor think about the fact that they operate under foundational assumptions, which means unprovable assumptions, which means things that they cannot prove, but which are, in fact, unprovable that they use as the foundation for how they interpret the evidence that is around them. And there was an evolutionist in the 1960s. As a matter of fact, he published his book in 1960 called Implications of Evolution. And he willingly admitted to fundamental, unprovable assumptions. His name was G.A. Kirkut. And he said that those fundamental, unprovable assumptions were these. Number one, he said evolutionists assume that non-living things gave rise to living things. It's called spontaneous gener- generation. This is not something that has been provable, testable, repeatable, scientific method stuff. It's an assumption. Second, they believe that this is another assumption that spontaneous generation occurred only once. That's why we don't see it and it's not testable, repeatable, and provable because spontaneous generation only happened once. This is a fundamental assumption of Darwinian evolution. Three, viruses, bacteria, plants, animals are all related to each other. That is a fundamental assumption that is made that is not testable, repeatable, provable. Number four, that single-celled life forms, they're called protozoa, gave rise to multiple-celled life forms, metazoa. Number five, that various invertebrates, that would mean that they have no, for lack of better, uh, for lack of simplicity, no spinal column, that various invertebrate phyla are interrelated one to another. Five, that invertebrates gave rise to vertebrates, those having a spinal column. That is six, excuse me. And then number seven, finally, that within the vertebrates, the fish gave rise to amphibia and the amphibia to reptiles and then to birds and um, mammals. These are what Kirkett called in 1960 in his book the fundamental assumptions of Darwinian evolution. Now each of these claims forming the basis for what we call Darwinian evolutionary theory is not a fact but an assumption made to enable the, the evidence to fit a model. So what the evolutionary scientist says is that within the model that we have, if these are the assumptions and then we build upon that this evidence, then we come to these conclusions. And we in, in creation science would do the same thing. We'd say uh, these are the assumptions that we have that form the foundation. The assumptions are God created the world, that we have an accurate and clear biblical record of of, of that God did this, of of how he did it, of when he did it, in the time that he did it. We have a couple of gaps in the genealogy where there might be a little bit of variation as it relates to time, but we have gaps that are not so sufficient to allow for dramatic periods of, of time that are missing. And then we trace those back and we build upon that a foundation and then we look at the evidence that around us, uh, that is around us and we say, how does this fit with our fundamental assumptions and does it. And if we are honest with ourselves, if we come to things that simply cannot fit our fundamental assumptions, then we have to make decisions. 
Are our fundamental assumptions sound? Do we just not have the technology or the means necessary to understand how our fundamental assumptions relate? Or are our fundamental assumptions actually wrong? And all of that's fine. I mean, we, we, we do it, they do it, everyone does it. Throughout this series, we have thought through how the evidence of the world around us fits into what the Bible claims happened. Interpreting that evidence through a biblical worldview in order to come to conclusions. And what we have found, I believe, is that the world as we see it today, when filtered through the fundamental assumptions that God created it, that God designed it, and then this great global catastrophe, the great flood that fundamentally terraformed the entire planet and changed the fundamental way that humanity interacted with the world around it, that with those fundamental assumptions in place, we see that the world as it exists today does fit within this biblical worldview and its assumptions. And the evolutionists, the Darwinian evolutionists, might say the same thing, so that what is truly worth our time and this is kind of one of the, one of the, the, the conclusions that I give here to this, this introduction to Genesis 10. When it, when it comes down to the back and forth that we might have with folks on the validity of creation and evolution and such, what is truly worth our time in the debate might not be so much simply saying, look at this evidence here. Because when the Darwinian evolutionist sees the Grand Canyon and they see the layers in the Grand Canyon. They see a little bit of water over an awful lot of time carved out this big canyon. And when I look at that exact same evidence with all of those layers, I look at a lot of water in a very little bit of time carving out that canyon. So it's not that we don't see the same evidence. And it's not that that evidence might not be consistent with both ways of looking at it. The question is, what are our fundamental assumptions? And that may be where, where the debate really is worth our time. It's getting down to those fundamental assumptions. Not necessarily the evidence that lies before us, but the assumptions that we make which draw us to said conclusions. Okay, so we're working our way into Genesis 10 here. This is a long introduction this morning. Back to this article for a few moments. What the observable, testable, and repeatable stuff, that's the science, right? The actual science. What that tells us is that all of Earth's people, at least within these 53, you know, in this article, within the 53 nations that were tested here, we would believe that if they broaden that out, we'd expect these same results because of what the Bible tells us fall into these three genetic groups. Their assumptions about how often mitochondrial DNA changes, uh, enough to make, it, make a distinct lineage or a distinct people group, is about 3,500 years. That brings them to the high number that they, that they come to, 77,000 years or so. We would, of course, expect that to have been bumped down. But is it not fascinating that the Bible, written thousands of years ago before modern science, tells us that all of the people groups in the world came out of these three families. And here we are in 2023. Fifteen years ago, genetic, genetic scientists came to the same conclusion through observation and testing that, in fact, beyond the single man and woman out of whom all humanity can be traced, there are, in fact, three Distinct lineages from which all modern nations are traceable. 
And with that general breakup being, as they say here, that there was an African group, a Eurasian group encompassing Europe, Middle East, and Southwest Asia, and then an East Asian group including more, most of the you know, East Asian cultures as well as Native American peoples. And one more thing to mention before I actually dig into the text itself in Genesis 10. Genesis 10 is a genealogy similar to those which we considered in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Genesis chapter 5 with Seth. And genealogies are one of those things which people can kind of cringe about when we read the Bible, right? Those boring genealogies, all of those names I can't pronounce. And it's absolutely the case that genealogies serve very little practical purpose as it relates to your daily walk with Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that they serve no purpose at all. In fact, they're very purposeful and important in the Bible. Say, Pastor, why put these silly genealogies into the Bible? Well, first, genealogies are one of the clearest, definitive statements of historical credibility that we have in the Bible. If you want to understand whether something is historically credible, one of the things that you can do One of the things that helps us understand if there's credibility there is to leave a lineage, to trace the lines so that you can trace things back. If you can trace things back, then you can start to see if there are inconsistencies. A genealogy encourages people to prove the accuracy of the history that's being stated here. If I leave breadcrumbs for someone to follow, then they're at least able to test whether or not what I'm saying is historically accurate. And in that the Bible boldly states, proclaims genealogies, this is a testimony to two things. First, that what the Bible is attempting to do here is represent history, not mythology. People say, well, you know, everything before Genesis chapter 12, that's myth. And then Genesis chapter 12 is where it kind of hits history. Well, you can say that, and that's fine. You can believe that, but that's not what the Bible presents. What the Bible presents is so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. That's that's a genealogy. That's history. That's them saying this is rooted in something real. And second, not only does it state that it's seeking to represent history, but then again, as I said, it welcomes scrutiny as it relates to the accuracy and the history it represents. And you say, well, pastor, we must have lost those records today. How can, how can we uh, go back and, and, and connect this to anything in history when, when these things are so far gone? Well, yeah, except these were written a long time ago. And the people that wrote them in their day were welcoming scrutiny too. And you would imagine that at some point somebody would have tossed it out if it did not measure up to scrutiny. Second, not just, it does not just relate itself to historical credibility, but it relates itself to time. Genealogies relate us to time, allowing us to understand these events within a timeline and not just in ambiguous happenings detached from the world in which we live. What we're going to find, we'll get into this next week, is we're going to use the genealogies to understand how far after the flood the confusion of languages happened. And that's going to be really important. My, uh, my, my wife and children were asking about that this morning. Dad, did Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, were they still alive when Babel happened? And they were asking because of some things in, in, in various stories that they've heard where it seems as though Noah may have been alive. And so we talked through that based upon the timeline and the timeline that I only know because Genesis 11 tells it to me. And to this end, genealogies do have tremendous biblical and historical value. Now, 
that doesn't mean that they're interesting or useful for you day in and day out. Some of you have perhaps begun a Bible in a year plan recently to begin the new year. And you've hit, Gen- uh, you've hit Genesis 10 and you've hit Genesis 11 and you've slogged through it and it's not been very much fun. And you come to those chapters and your eyes cross and your mind numbs and you read so-and-so begets so-and-so and you can't pronounce those names anyway. And of that, I give you a couple of exhortations. First, don't simply neglect these genealogical passages. The names are difficult to pronounce, they're tedious, but they can often contain one or two little snippets or gems that are worthy of your understanding. Such as when we talked in Genesis chapter 5. And in Genesis chapter 5, we were reading of Seth, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and he lived for this number of years. And so-and-so begat so-and-so, and he lived for this number of years. And then recall when we got to Enoch, it said so-and-so begat Enoch, and Enoch walked with God this number of years. So we saw a change in the pattern from so-and-so lived to Enoch walked with God. And that can put up a little flag in our minds that say, hmm, maybe this Enoch character matters a little bit. And then we start to dig a little bit into Enoch and we learn why it is that Enoch might matter a little bit. And, and, and that's, that may be the, very, the only thing we get out of that genealogy, but there's something there. Or in the New Testament, when we read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, which is the only place in the Bible that informs us that the harlot Rahab, you remember Rahab, she's the one that was in Jericho. She's the one that saved those spies and she, was, she and her family were the only ones that lived through Jericho. And then you never hear her from Rahab again. You learn in Matthew chapter one that she became the mother of a guy named Boaz. And Boaz married this woman named Ruth. And Boab and Ruth had this kid named Obed. And Obed had this kid named Jesse. And Jesse had this kid named David. And David became the great king of Israel. And you find out that this woman Rahab happens not only to have been spared the judgment of Jericho, but this harlot Rahab is in the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. And that's interesting. And there's things that we can draw from that And so it's worth it. To that end, when you read through the Bible, two things. First, don't feel guilty to jump past the genealogy. Don't worry about it. You want to jump past the genealogy? Go for it. Jump past the genealogy. That's fine. They aren't intended for daily edification. Go ahead. But as I say that, maybe you got a day off coming up. You got a little extra time coming up. I'd encourage you, go back and do a little digging into that same genealogy. When you've, got the, when you've got a little extra hardiness and patience one day, and you say, I want to slog a little bit. I want to dig a little bit. On that day, go back to that genealogy and figure out if you missed something. Because there's stuff in there that's worth your time. But, you know, it's not going to change your life. But it, it can be worth your time. Okay, so, intro over. Now into the text. Genesis chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were sons born after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshech, and Tiras. And the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, and Riphath, and Torgamah. And the sons of Javan, Elisha, and Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands. Everyone after his tongue, after their families, in their nations. Now take note as we read this. Remember what I said at the very beginning. 
that Genesis chapter 10 is a bit of an overview chapter that takes us out of the narrative and gives us a summary. Now, the reason why I say that is because what we just read is the dividing of, of, of peoples into nations by tongue, family, and nation. Now, we are actually not going to discover why it is that, that, that these three brothers, who all spoke the same language, ended up becoming multiple tongues, multiple languages. We're not going to find that out until Genesis 11, right? So we're actually stepping out of the narrative into a summary passage here. However, we will get there next week, and in the weeks following, we'll talk about these various peoples and languages and why and how that happened. This chapter gives us the results of said divisions, and we begin with the family of Japheth. Japheth becomes, in the word of the Washington Post article from 2009, the families of Eurasia. Europe, Middle East, Southwest Asia is what they said. Um, in this particular graph, it's not perhaps the most readable to you, um, but the green are the descendants of Japheth, the orange are the descendants of Ham, the purple are the descendants of Shem, and uh, so you can see that Japheth populated most of what we call uh, Europe and Russia today, as well as around the, uh, um, the, the, uh, the Baltics and the Black Sea and such. Uh, notable names here within Japheth for our study are Gomer, Magog, Meshech, and Tubal. These nations are not notable necessarily in Genesis. They become notable in prophecy. In Ezekiel chapter 38, in Revelation chapter 20, we find Gog of Magog, right? We find Meshech and Tubal. We find uh, um, Gomer as well. We find all of these names come up in prophetic revelations of end times events, telling us that those nations are still considered there. Now, they're not called that anymore. We can piece together a little bit of history. Josephus helps us a bit with this to try to understand around where these are. We have some manner of speculation that Magog is generally modern-day Russia. And within Orthodox interpretation, there's a fair consensus that Magog is in that area and perhaps even the nation of Russia Itself, it would be consistent with a lot of what we know today in geopolitics if Magog was Russia, uh, but th- there's some speculation there. Meshech and Tubal, according to Josephus, were nations that were around the Black Sea uh, into what we call now Turkey and Syria. Uh, but these are, again, general speculations. Nothing there is necessarily written in stone. It's just what scholars and theologians have put together throughout the years of understanding history and such. Uh, Those are the ones out of Japheth that are are particularly known biblically and that matter a little bit. Again, this map is not intended to be entirely authoritative or anything of the sort. This is just a general idea of what the text is talking about. Hopefully that'll be a help to you. Either way, we would speculate that both the kingdoms of Antichrist which we believe to be out of the Western world. The Bible says the Antichrist will come from the people that destroyed the temple in 70 AD, which was uh, Rome, which was the Western world. And the kingdom of Gog of Magog, we would believe, are derived from the sons of or the nations of Japheth. We then continue. Verses 6 through 20. And the sons of Ham, Cush and Mitzrayim and Phut and Canaan. And the sons of Cush, Seba, and Havilah, and Sabda, and Reamah, and Sabteca, and the sons of Reamah, Sheba, and Dedan. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty, hunt, uh, mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. 
whereof it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erek, and Akkad, and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Asher, and builded Nineveh, and the cities of Rehoboth, and Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. The same is a great city. And Mitzrayim begat Ludim, and Anamim, and Leabim, and Naphtuhim, and Pathrusim, and, Kalsu, uh, and Kazluhim, excuse me, out of whom came Philistim, and Kaphtorim. And Canaan begat Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Gergesite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvadite, and the Zemarite, and the Hamathite. And afterward were the families of the Canaanites spread abroad. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou cometh to Gerer, unto Gaza, as thou goest unto Sodom, and Gomorrah, and Adma, and Zeboim, even unto Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, after their families, after their tongues, in their countries, in their nations. So we come next to these descendants of Ham. See, if, even if you don't get to read the genealogy on your own this year, at least you're hearing it today, right? So you can check it off on your, on your Bible reading chart. One of which, one of these sons of Ham, right? We considered just briefly last week when we went through the curse of Ham's son, Canaan. We talked about the curse of Canaan. Out of Ham came Canaan, certainly, but Canaan was just one of his sons. Out of Ham came many of those great kingdoms of the east, Babylon, beginning with Ham's grandson, Nimrod, of which we will have much to say over the course. This is one of those times, right? You're reading a genealogy. You're reading just about the table of nations. And then all of a sudden you come to this guy, Nimrod, and no, no other man is... is expounded upon in this genealogy except this guy Nimrod. And you say, why? why? Why does the genealogy expand on Nimrod but not on anyone else? I might need to do a little looking into Nimrod and figure some things out about Nimrod. We'll get there in a couple of weeks. So Babylon uh, began there and, and Nimrod was called the mighty hunter before the Lord. Also Egypt. The Hebrew word for Egypt is Mitzrayim, which is actually the name of this guy, right? So Mitzrayim in Hebrew is Egypt, and Mitzrayim was one of the sons of Ham. He created Egypt. Now, as we know, as we get into Exodus, and if you look into history, Egypt was a tremendous civilization, right? I mean, pyramids, sphinx, all that great stuff. They were a tremendous civilization. And in that they were such a civilization, where did he come from? He came from Ham, right? And, and, and we see that. Babylon, tremendous civilization, came from Ham. Egypt, tremendous civilization, came from Ham. Also Philistine. These would be the people by whom would come the Philistines. And, of course, we'll see them quite a bit. We won't see them in, uh, much in Genesis, but, w- but we see them quite a bit in the Old Testament, in the Word of God. And, of course, finally, Canaan. Out of whom would come the loosely connected group that we would find many times in the first books called the Canaanites. Now, the Philistines also lived in the area that we call the land of Canaan, but the Philistines were not native to that land. The Philistines were actually native to this area up here, which in this case uh, is connected to Shem there in Lud. 
But um, the Philistines migrated down to the, to, to the area of Canaan. They were not initially from that area of Canaan, and they had a, 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 a somewhat different culture than Canaanite cultures that were around them. Uh, so uh, that's neither here nor there, but, but now you know. So the land of Canaan, and these people, of course, would be destroyed in the judgment of God for their wickedness by God using the nation of Israel to do so. And we read about that in the Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and such. And then finally, that brings us to the final son. We talked about Japheth, then the text talks about Ham, and now we come to Shem. The, the children of Shem are called the Shemitic people, which is where we get the idea of the Semitic people. So the Semites are not just... The, 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 the Jews, although that's, that's how we use it today. But the Semitic people groups goes actually beyond just Israel. They are the Shemites or the Shemitic peoples. Of them we read this in uh, verses 21 to 32. Unto Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth the elder, even to him were children born, the children of Shem, Elam and Asher and Arphaxed, and Lud, and Aram, the children of Aram, Uds, and Hul, and Gether, and Mash. Excuse me. Um, and Arphaxed begat Salah, and Salah begat Eber. And unto Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days was the earth divided. And his brother's name was Jokten. And Jokten begat Almadad, and Sheleph. And Hazar Meveth, uh, uh, and Jera, and Hadoram, and Udzai, and Dikla, and Obal, and Abimael, and Sheba, and Ophir, and Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. And their dwelling was from Mesha, as thou, thou goest unto Sefer, a mount of the east. These are the sons of Shem after their families, after their tongues, in their lands. After their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, after their generations in their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. So notice here uh, on our chart that Asher is said to be a son of Shem. Now recall that in the Japheth account, it talked about Nimrod, and then it said, Out of that came, out of Asher came um, Nineveh. And that became the great Assyrian Empire, Assyrian, Asher, the Assyrian Empire. So it's connected to the kingdom of Babylon. That's why it was put into that Japheth area. But Asher was not a son of Japheth. Asher was a son of Shem. So the Assyrian Empire actually came out of, was one of the Shemitic peoples, one of the Shemitic people groups, uh, the line of Shem that we find that. And Nineveh is, is considered historically and archaeologically one of the oldest cities that they've ever found. And the Assyrian Empire being one of those original oldest empires along with Babylon. And it will be the man Arphaxad that we talked about who will become the child of note as we continue in the text. And we'll talk about that toward the end of Genesis 11 next week. In the same way that the Bible took Adam and Eve and then zoomed in on Cain and Abel and then Abel died and Seth was born, zoomed in on Seth and traced Seth's line, then zoomed in on Noah and traced Noah's line. Then we zoom in on Shem and we trace Shem's line and then we zoom in on Arphaxad and we trace Arphaxad and we trace that line of Shem into Arphaxad because through this will come a man named Abram. 
whose name will be changed to Abraham, who will become the father of many nations, and who will become the father of Israel. And Genesis chapter 10 ends by saying that these, were the, these nations were defi- divided in the earth after the flood. So notice here how the, the text is using the word divided. That the earth being divided here is that the nations are spreading out. That's what it means here. That's what the text says it means when it says that the, that the nations were divided or the earth was divided. And that will help us understand what it means that Peleg was born in the days when the earth was divided. And that will help us gain a timetable for when we believe that God actually confused the languages. We'll talk about that next week. That'll be in Genesis 11. So, we've talked through all of this, and I told you it was going to be a little bit of a message today. Because as we come to the end of our message, I say, all right, we come to the end of our message, and the way I preach, I kind of preach the way Paul wrote. Paul, in the beginning of his epistles, he gives a bunch of doctrinal truth. And then the second half of his epistles is application. So within my messages, I usually give you a bunch of teaching, and then I say, what can we do with this? How do we apply this to our lives? So I asked, what do we draw from our time together? And, I, and when, when, when I asked and I prayed through that, I, I came to a big goose egg. I don't really know. I just gave you a bunch of facts today. Perhaps you'll walk away from this message today with a renewed perspective on the way fundamental assumptions work as it relates to the way we think through things. That we understand that when we make conclusions, when we interpret evidence and we come to conclusions on our interpretation of the evidence, that just because we interpreted the evidence a certain way does not mean that's the only way evidence can be interpreted. And that we have to check the fundamental assumptions we have in our lives upon which we build interpretations. And this is not just about science. It's also about how we interpret the Word of God. When we talk about how we interpret the Word of God, we have to start with our method of interpretation. Because if I choose a different method of interpretation, if I choose different fundamental assumptions about what God is doing through the Bible and what, who He is in the Bible and what He plans in the Bible, then I'm going to come to different conclusions about, say, what the book of the Revelation tells us about the times. I'm going to come to different conclusions about whether or not Israel matters to God's plan anymore. I'm going to come to different conclusions about whether or not how much authority the church collective has over Christians in this time and in this place. And all of that's going to come down to the manner, the way I interpret the Bible based upon fundamental assumptions that I make about what God is doing in the Bible. And so we need to be thoughtful about our fundamental assumptions. And I would say... Even more so, most of us Christians are having our arguments, cordial though they may be, about the surface level stuff, the conclusions. We have arguments about conclusions, but we never actually talk about why we don't come to the same conclusions. Maybe if we came and we said, can we talk about why we come to those conclusions? Not just proof texting from the Word of God, but actually saying, what is it? What are the fundamental interpretive methods that I'm using to come to these conclusions? Maybe we'd get a little bit farther in our understanding one of another. So perhaps you you pulled from that today and understanding that you have fundamental assumptions that you make and thinking through those assumptions. Perhaps you walk away with maybe a little more confidence in the Word of God as you learn that even the secular world cannot escape the testimony of the truths of God's Word written in our DNA. Perhaps you gained a renewed appreciation for genealogies 
as we looked into it today. And you, and, and, and you were able to think through what you want to do with genealogies moving forward as it, as it, it re- refers to or with respect to your own reading and your own study and your own looking into the Word of God. Maybe I've been able to release a little guilt from those of you who just kind of skip them and feel bad about doing it. Don't worry about that. Go, go for it. Skip it. That's fine. Just on a hearty day, come back to it and think about it a little bit. Or ask me about it and I'd be happy to explain it to you for you. Or perhaps like with many instances, you've walked away, you can walk away from the sermon and maybe the Holy Spirit has nothing directly for you today except that we can walk away saying that we spent time in the Word of God today. But may we, as God's people, if nothing else, walk away with a renewed understanding of these things in God's Word. So that when, if nothing else, when your friend or your neighbor or your relative or, your, or a stranger or, or, or one of your children comes up to you and says, Hey, Mom and Dad, what are these genealogies about? Or, Hey, Mom and Dad, so-and-so, some such science program said this, but the Bible says that. You now might be just a little bit better equipped, perhaps just reminded, about how it is you can have answers for them. Or at least be able to point them to said answers. That when people question the historical or the scientific relevance of God's word, you might have on the top of your mind those answers that are necessary to help them navigate and understand their feelings on the matter until the end that not just God's word, but God himself is glorified. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.